Hey, on this on this week's episode of the Horror Podcast, we're talking about Thomas Ligotti, dehumanization, corporate horror, rousing leviathans, and Ice T's mean guns. <laughs> Welcome to year three, or the junior year, episode one of the Horror Pod Class. My name is Tyler, and I am the managing editor-in-chief of Signal Horizon, and a teacher at a local high school here in Kansas City, Missouri. Signal Horizon is the place to go for your smart genre programming, so for all of your coverage, check out SignalHorizon.com. And when I'm not doing that, uh, I am joined tonight by our co-host and book editor of Signal Horizon, Mike. Mike, how was your summer, man? It was fantastic. Got a lot of family time in. I got I got All nothing right. else. I got nothing else. It was very <laughs> re- relaxing. Took a little bit of time off. It was beautiful. Okay. Yeah. Love summer. Are you uh you ready to go back to school though? Ready for the kids to go back to school? Most definitely. Most definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's pretty standard. I think uh I have seen enough of my own children. I'm ready to go spend uh some time with some other other people's kids for a little while. Yep. That sounds a little creepy, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, but not, you, you, not, you, not, you're not, kind of a creepy guy, though. So, hey, man, speaking <laughs> of creepy guys, what are you reading? What are you watching uh, this week? Yeah. Um, so I had just a ton of time to get caught up on some fantastic movies. So I'm going to list a few of them. Maybe a few of them are going to end up uh, as horror pod class episodes. Who knows? But I watched Braid on Hulu. It is a strange little bizarre film about uh like three twenty something uh women and their relationship. Uh I, I don't want to give too much away for it other than it involves a lot of drugs and a lot of insanity and a little bit of murder. So it's pretty fun. Hmm. Uh I I uh checked out a movie called The Transfiguration, which is a vampire film but also a film about poverty and, you know, that kind of threshold between academic, smart and and kind of pulpy. It plays in that middle ground really, really, really well. It also uh, stars the lead of uh, The Ranger, which was one of my favorite films of last year. And I read a book over break. Actually, I read multiple books over break, but uh, I fell in love with the novel We Eat Our Own by Kia Wilson as I understand it, that is a first-time author, and it is not gory, like, pulpy, awful horror. I would describe it as intellectual, sweaty horror. <laughs> it feels damp through the entire book, but God, I was I was fascinated by it and hooked from day one. And I think I read it in, like, four days or something. So check it out. Des- describe what damp means in a book. Yeah, like the entire book takes place. It, it's kind of a riff off of um, the Green Inferno and um, uh, Cannibal Holocaust. Oh, really? Okay. So huh. yeah, it uh, so it takes place kind of in this setting in South America. So 
everyone is described as dirty and sweaty or like damp from rain or or you know from the the river or whatever oh. so it just makes you feel disgusting and that's part of the you know that that that's done intentionally but this movie really i i just felt damp i felt sweaty the whole time <laughs> and it, you know it, it was it was pretty remarkable. To be fair, you're a pretty sweaty pers- person in general. So um, I also see True. I also see on here you've uh, did did you finish up uh, Make America Hate Again? I'm about halfway through it, so I was going to save it for uh, you know the next couple of episodes oh, when I you know okay. all the way through. Okay. That's okay. Yeah, I, but it is fantastic. We will mention it multiple times. It's edited by Victoria McCollum and. It's got like some Scott Poole in it and some other folks that we just adore. I I, I read that first uh, that first essay by by Scott Poole. It is fantastic. It is fantastic. Yeah, yeah. All about all about evil clowns. Yep. I'm down for some evil clowns. Yeah. So what about you, Mike? What have you been uh, watching, reading, whatever? Yeah. So probably the most in- interesting thing I came across this this summer is uh, a new book by Matt Cardin called "To Rouse Leviathan." It's a collection of short fiction. I had previously read some of his his nonfiction, which is very very good, and he's also a, a co-editor of a of a journal I really like called uh, Vestarian. And uh, this I I hadn't read his fiction because it's um, very hard to get a hold of. Um, small press, limited runs, very expensive to get used copies of it. Um, to rouse Leviathan has got some new work, but. Uh, it's really a compilation of his older stuff that you can't find, right? So oh, that's cool. so that is that is really cool. So and it's uh, it's out by um, Hippocampus Press. Obviously, it's going to be a really really good fit in their kind of lineup, which is very uh, Lovecraftian and co- cosmic horror type stuff. Uh, great fit in with with the stuff that they publish, and it is a fantastic fantastic book. Um, the best, I think, the best way to describe it is that um, it has a lot of these like religious kind of themes in it, without being like The Exorcist, right? Because the exor- Ooh, the, cool. the Exorcist is a book, or uh, The Exorcist is is a concept that is more it's it's horror with religious elements in it, right? Whereas mm-hmm, sure. Matt Cardin seems to be able to do religion as horror. And it is really, really good. There's, there's, a, there's a lot of stuff in there that I've just hadn't seen before, so I got very excited about it. Yeah, that sounds that sounds pretty awesome, man. I'll try to get a, a, a review up of it soon. Sounds like a plan. Mm-hmm. Can't wait to uh, to check it out. So, have you you watched anything interesting, or you've been oh, uh, too I saw, busy? I saw Midsummer, but that was about that was about it. Pretty good. Okay, nothing to write home about. Yeah. All right, buddy, what have you got for uh, Dark Corners of the Web this week? Dark, 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 dark corners, corners of the web. Well, I have two things, and they are both a little insider baseball, at least for you and I. Um, the first part of Zombie 101, the college class that we teach to uh, middle school and high school kids in the summertime, their final project is to create, in 24 hours, they have to write, storyboard, Act, direct, edit, you know, completely produce a 30 to 60 second public service announcement using zombies as a metaphor. So we have all of the finalists from this year out on our YouTube channel, including the winner. So we would encourage all of you to take a look 
And all they do uh, is use their phone and whatever free editing software that they can get on their phones. So I'm always amazed at, you know, the kind of differing levels of quality, but also creativeness of, of these kids. And I don't know, this year's winter, especially, I thought was really interesting and leaned really heavy into the metaphor, which I thought was was pretty awesome. So check those Excellent. out. And then, yeah. And we, by the time this episode comes out, I think we will have about a week left um, on our call for submissions for the first ever run of our monthly short fiction that we are going to publish uh, here on Signal Horizon. We're going to call that the Journal of Black Ivy. And September 1st, we will have our first publication and we would, depending on, you know, our Patreon and some other things, we'll run as much as we can afford and can pay for uh, of just fantastic, phenomenal literature that has been submitted to us. Excellent. Hey, one thing. Have we double checked that Journal of Black Ivy is not taken by somebody else? It's not. Okay, good. Just making sure. Just double checking, you know. Yeah, and I'm sure uh, the Journal of Black Ivy that exists out there right now um, will be perfectly fine with our uh, copyright infringement. No, actually, uh, I think we're I think we're in good shape. Okay, awesome. All right, buddy. So, what are we talking about this week? All right, so I had somebody send me an email like a year and a half ago. Okay. Okay. Because I had mentioned on an episode that um one of my I, this is like super way way back but i had talked about a musical that had john gallagher jr in it it was one of my favorite musicals i don't know how that came up in an episode but it did and okay. somebody sent us an email that said hey have you seen the belco experiment and i was like no i have not seen that movie so i checked it out We will talk about the quality of movie in just a moment, (laughs) but it really encapsulated what I saw as a growing movement of corporate horror. So I think today we're going to spend some time talking about what corporate horror is, maybe unpacking the Belko experiment a little bit, and then trying to figure out if that movie is really a phenomenal example of corporate horror or like, you know what what corporate horror looks like right now i love it man i absolutely absolutely love it because you know who's behind corporate horror yeah i think you've already mentioned him at least once um yeah this episode yeah. somebody needs to keep a running tally uh if somebody can keep a running tally and send it to us we will by the end of uh, our junior year here we will you know we'll, we'll send it out to everybody who is yeah. who started, you know, who's the the corporate horror guy, Mike? It's Thomas Ligotti. All right. So this is the way I see this podcast going. Uh, we'll talk about corporate horror. What is it? Um, and then we'll move into dissecting the Belco experiment. Cool. Exper- experimenting upon the Belco experiment. And then we'll wrap back around and see if we can apply that to uh, to corporate horror and see if it is a an example of corporate horror. I'm down. Let's do it. As as we defined it. All right. So what is corporate horror? Um, iMasters. <laughs> iMasters is uh, the job that I had in high school where I sold eyeglasses to people and we got them done in an hour or they got their glasses for free. And it was in the mall 
and it was mind numbing. And it uh, was full of people that had, I'm sure, made careers and were perfectly happy and successful. But as a 16 year old, uh, I wanted to hang myself with my necktie. So, mm, yeah. And you had to wear a necktie. I remember that. All right. Well, I think that um, let's just let's just start with uh, with if you Google corporate horror, mm-hmm. like, man, like the first thing that comes up is a whole bunch of stuff about Thomas Ligotti. And the reason is because um, he's written two books that have corporate horror in the name. Right. So and, and if anybody knows anything about SEO. Right. That really helps. Oh, yeah. When you do a Google search, if it says it right in the name. Right. Right. That's what so, that's what you got to do. So Thomas Ligotti is up on his SEO. I see it. All right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So and, and I think as we get into this, we're going to be able to see um, the differences between this, what I would call a unique brand of corporate horror that is its own kind of subgenre that may or may not be able to stand on its own versus kind of regular horror that maybe has corporate elements or a corporate character or characters that are in a corporation or just an evil corporation. Right? Okay. I mean, that makes some sense, right? Sure. Uh, yeah. I, I totally think okay. that's fair. Okay. So he's got, he's got five stories that you could probably call the canon of Legati corporate horror. The first one is my work is not yet done, which is I think his longest and probably most autobiographical work. Um, I have a special plan for this world and the nightmare network. Now those three are found in uh, a book called my work is not yet done. Three tales of corporate horror. Mm, ah, good, right. good SEO there. Right. right uh-huh. And there's two further works called our temporary supervisor and my case for retributive action. And those are found in Teatro Grotesco. Cool. And, uh, but they're also found in a book called across the border, more tales of corporate horror, which is like unfindable. Like huh. used copy, used copies go for like 150 bucks. Wow. Um, yes. Uh, it, limited run. They were all signed. It's like, I think there were only like 150 or 200 of them. Anyways. Yeah. I love, I love that title though. Teatro uh, Grotesco, right? Like yeah. uh, the, the theater of the grotesque. I think that my translation, yeah. oh, that's fucked up, but great. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Really good. Really good. Um, maybe um, another story. Um, uh, the town manager. Yeah. Might fit in also. Yeah. yeah. Um, so also in corporate horror, I got to throw, throw out, there's a couple other folks that have been writing it. Mark Samuels um, has a book that is is almost all short stories of, of corporate horror. Uh, Matt Carden, in his latest book that I already talked about, has uh, one story. Nicole Cushing has a great story called Company Town. Um, and even um, John Paget's um, Infusorium might uh, have some of the elements of, of corporate horror. And uh, Matthew M. Bartlett has got a great story called Effigies of Former Supervisors, I think. Yeah, that's so, great. Yeah. So, I mean, it might seem weird, right, at first. It might seem odd that Thomas Ligotti, a guy that's known primarily for supernatural horror, uh, would get into corporate horror. Um, and it's, I think it's easy to look at his like personal life and I'm not going to delve too much into that. Uh, but some of the strife that he personally felt while he was working for, um, I think he worked for a company called Gale group in, uh, around, uh, around Detroit. Uh, but I think it's probably a better and more nuanced answer, um, to look at how the supernatural and the corporate actually, uh, dovetail pretty nicely, uh, 
in a way that's particularly powerful in, in Ligotti's writing. So S.T. Joshi, um, who I'm not a huge fan of, but he has written <laughs> extensively on a lot of the people that I really like. So All right. uh, he he, he kind of argues that the focus of Ligotti's work is, and this is a quote from him, the the focus of all Ligotti's work is a systematic assault on the real world and a replacement of it by the unreal, which I, I think. Okay. I think it's kind of okay, right? Um, okay, but but in this case, I think I think that the a lot of the subtext to Legati's work is that the real and the unreal are in many ways the same, sometimes interchangeable. Things that they they blend together, they meld together, and, and sometimes the things that we consider the most real, like uh, like the self included, are often like more unreal and more supernatural than a, than they are at a first glance, right? So like. And here's the interesting thing. Here's why I think corporate horror <laughs> works for Legati. Okay. Is that corporations are the same way. They're the same way because they're not real. They're inherently unreal. Okay? Yeah. No matter how many times Mitt Romney says that they're people, they're not. Yeah. Well, and I think if you I've, – I've been thinking a lot for lots of reasons about branding and, um, you know – the, the creation of a, a corporate mentality. And I think the first thing that came to my mind in the context of horror is uh, a concept called, I, I think it's called the simulacrum. Do you know what that is? Oh yeah. Like uh kind of like a simulation, right? Yeah. It's like um, the, the painting of a photograph, right? Or it's this thing that uh, closely mirrors something else that closely mirrors reality, right? So it's like two or three steps removed from reality. And I okay. think what corporations, right, or at least companies that try to sell things to people, right, create a brand which is, by its very nature, um, a, a fake representation of something else, right? They say, well, this is what we want to project, right? And here's how we're going to advertise it. And here's how we're going to make this. So now we have a brand that is really a representation of a fake reality, right? And so all of corporate mentality, you know, like is this kind of Orwellian doublespeak to try to convince people that the simulacrum, right, is the real reality. And I think Ligotti kind of talks some about that. And the idea that art and reality and representations of reality can sometimes blur, right? I'm thinking um, like the bungalow house uh, is, oh, a, yeah. is a great example of that. But mm. I, I think that's part of why corporate horror appeals so much to us, but also why it's so interesting uh, to examine from a horror element is we, we automatically have this thing that is artificial, Right. We like yeah. the corporate um, mentality. Right. Makes it kind of uncanny in the uncanny valley. It's enough of our own world that it reflects it, but not enough that we know it's real. In fact, we often know it's not real. Exactly. Exactly. And I think I think I think to go just one step further not only is that not real is the things they're trying to sell us not real the airs that they're putting on are not real the advertisements aren't real they are not real in and of themselves they're only as real as we want to make them okay example what is facebook okay you imagine facebook in your head 
but try to show me something that is Facebook, and you can't. It's ones and zeros. It's some. Uh, it's 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 a bunch of lawyers. It's a it's a building, but it's not really the building. Is it a server? No, it's not really the server. Is it the people that make up Facebook? Well, maybe kind of, sort of. Can you can you file a lawsuit against Facebook? Yeah, you can, but that's only because we have this legal structure. I mean, you can't go out there and pick up a thing that's Facebook. Yeah. Right. Right. And 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 so so thus they're inherently not real, which is is I don't know. A pretty, pretty interesting, pretty interesting idea. But anyways, so I went back, I read all of his corporate horror, and I picked out a couple of like themes and motifs, I think, that really kind of sum it up. Can we can we call and it Mike's taxonomy of corporate horror? We totally can. Or we Let's can call go. it uh, or we can we, or we can call it uh, a business prospectus. Ooh, that's good. Horror. Like uh yeah. Uh, yeah, I like that. Like, this is the CV for corporate horror. Okay. All exactly, right. exactly. All right. And and one of the things you're going to notice is that even though I th- all of Legati's corporate horror have, has supernatural elements in it, except for maybe my work is not yet done, which there's a, there's a kind of a minority reading that might not, but I don't think that the supernatural and corporate horror necessarily have to be. One and the same, and, and and these thematic elements don't necessarily say that it has to be supernatural. Yeah. So I'm down. Here we go. Having a evil corporation is a good start, but your work is not yet done. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So so Tyler, throw out some evil corporations from from film and literature. Okay, Soylent Green, right? Um, mm, that's the first mm-hmm. one that pops into my brain. Um, yep. Obviously, the Umbrella Corporation. Um, like, I think they're evil. Wayland, uh, and I think it's, uh, it's got a... a Yukani? Yeah. Wayland Yukani? Yeah, Yeah. that sounds right. Um, Uh from the Alien movies. Um, here's, here's my favorite. You want to know my favorite? Which favorite? Bifco. Bifco. (laughs) Bifco from, uh, Back to the Future, man. Yeah. That corporation sucks. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think... Just in doing some preparation for this episode, there are a ton of different evil corporations out there, and that is a wonderful rabbit hole to fall into, and you will get, like, hundreds, and a lot of them are these really great pop culture reference points, and it really seems like people are can can really get behind evil corporations. That is, like, a unifying thing that people, everybody, everywhere <laughs> hates. So, yeah. Yeah. But I would argue that those are not necessarily examples of the kind of corporate horror that we want to talk about because um, these corporations are kind of just placeholders for evil people or the bad guys of the story, right? I mean, really, you could kind of replace them with another organization like an evil government or an evil cult or an evil singular bad guy like uh, like, a... you know, James Bond always had or whatever. Um, corporate horror that's, asks That's more. interesting that you mentioned James Bond because in the last few films, they introduced Spectre, which is an evil corporation, right? It's not an evil government entity. It is this really bad corporation. That's yeah, cool. that's true. And yeah. and so, so, so I think that while there may be, you know, a trend to more evil corporations being used— Corporate horror asks more. It totally engrosses 
the characters and the setting in the corporate environment. And that's something that we rarely see in these movies. R- rarely are are the characters outside. Uh, I mean, rarely are the characters inside the um, the corporation. Like uh, even uh, like Umbrella, right? I mean, usually in those movies, they're like, you know, she's been you know she's been made uh, by Umbrella, but she's definitely separate. She doesn't like work in an Umbrella office and stuff, you know. Oh yeah, the, well, you know the, the office setting is 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 important. Yeah, oh, hundred percent. And I think maybe what you're hinting at, as I looked at your taxonomy, I thought it was it was interesting for lots of reasons. But anytime that we get the corporation within itself being evil, right? We often have like a disembodied voice that acts as the corporation, right? So we get, um the little girl in resident evil, right. For umbrella. Mm. Right. Yeah. Um, in a real, another really great movie, not great, but a fun movie was escape room from last year. And they have these like kind of disembodied heads that you vaguely see, but it, they only represent the corporation as a way to have somebody, represent the corporation without any of the character backstory. And I think that kind of maybe represents the dehumanization of um, the kind of bureaucratic mess of the corporation, if that makes any kind mm. of sense. I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll totally buy that. Yeah. So, so, so I think that the, the corporate horror, it's got to take place in either an office or somewhere that like the corporation has total control over. Right. So, it's like it's like the office, right? The office is is office humor. You could call it corporate humor, not because all the a few of the characters work in an office or the office is, you know, a place that they go or whatever. It is rather it's because it all takes place there in the office, right? Yeah. Does that does that kind of make sense? Yeah, I, I totally think it makes sense. Right. It, it is environment. It, it is that classic environment that's important. Yeah, I think that kind of sterile office environment that you were talking about is important for conveying like a, a like a specific atmosphere, maybe. Oh, definitely. I mean this 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 atmosphere where the corporation's like in total control, and I, I think I think we should get into the dehumanization now. Oh, okay. Right, which is which is which is another another key. That's my second key aspect, which is. Uh, our corporate motto is replace synergize with dehumanize. Oh, I like that. All right. And everybody gets dehumanized by, by the corporation right from the start. Not just the main characters, not just the people that have been targeted. Every employee and everything they touch is is dehumanized, sucked of life, that kind of stuff. Oh, um, yeah. In, 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 in every in every one of these of these stories that, that, that Legati's got. And um uh, so Legati goes beyond just having like the actions and the plot kind of perform this. It's the very like substrate of the stories sometimes like few of the characters like have actual names as a way to dehumanize them. There's there's one guy that's just called the bow tie man because mm. he always wears a bow tie. Right. And and there's this literary device that is used in I have a special plan for this world uh, where. In the beginning, people are described just by their body parts, Ooh, right? Interesting. And 
and, and there, there's a really great novel by Flannery O'Connor called uh, named Wise Blood, where the the nihilistic like uh, viewpoint of one of the characters is reinforced by that literary device of of describing other characters by body parts and kind of as like a machine, like ra- rather than like a whole person, you're just like they'll they'll describe just parts of you like you're like a machine like put together of all these parts really really good but hmm. dehumanization gotta be gotta be part of it how did how did uh how did how were you dehumanized by uh lens crafters hey it was tell me about it, it. was i masters motherfucker all right oh, man, lens crafters were, was our chief competition um i like there is a mentality that corporations have to take on to to grow and expand right where they create labels for your job that is kind of weird corporate doublespeak like uh, my official titer, title was an eyewear specialist right so like i had an ews training manual and i had ews training that i had to do right Mm-hmm. And they would refer to you as an EWS. And I think that kind of label, right, A, necessarily pulls you from your identity so that they can train everybody the same way. Because the whole idea behind a franchise is that it looks and acts the same no matter wherever its location, right? Because you want that dependability of service or whatnot. But to get that, you have to automate what happens, you know? Like, you have to do exactly the same thing in every location. It is a necessity if you want things to be truly corporate, right? To strip strip away all things that would make that individual. And as a result, you know, individualization, I think, often runs contrary with corporatization because they're in way different businesses. So... I mean, it's the it's the 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 striving for that efficiency. Yeah, right. That efficient. The corporation wanted to be so efficient that they couldn't just call you an eyewear specialist. They had to call you an EWS, right? Because it was a little bit faster, mm-hmm. right? Um. Do do you, do you mind if I if I read part of uh, a a couple of paragraphs from uh, my work is not yet done? Um. If you think it adds to this conversation, knock yourself out, buddy. (laughs) All right. Nothing hard about making a good cup of coffee, Lillian said to this customer as she lit up another cigarette. And that statement provided something of an answer to my questions about Lillian and her business. Because the coffee at the Metro Diner didn't have to be as good as it was. Nor did the excellent food served there have to be so carefully prepared or so reasonably priced. That was not how we did things where I happened to work. The company that employed me strived only to serve up the cheapest fare that its customers would tolerate, churn it out as as fast as possible, and charge as much as they could get away with. If it were possible to do so, the company would sell what all businesses of this kind dream about selling creating what all our efforts were tacitly supposed to achieve, the ultimate product, nothing. And for this product, they would command the ultimate price, 
everything. Jesus. This market strategy would go on until one day among the worldwide ruins of derelict factories and warehouses and office buildings, there stood only a single shining windowless structure with no exit and no entrance. Inside would be, will be, only a dense network of computers calculating profits. Outside will be tribes of savage vagrants with no comprehension of the nature or purpose of the shining windowless structure. Perhaps they will worship it as a god. Perhaps they will try to destroy it. Their primitive armory proving wholly ineffectual against the smooth and impervious walls of the structure, upon which not even a scratch can be inflicted. I spent most of my days in a world devoted to turning this fable into reality. I knew that. So, long story short, like, Thomas Ligotti is the saddest, creepiest version of the Lorax known to man. Pretty much. That's a, that's a, that's a pretty good way of, that's a pretty good way of, uh, of putting it. Yeah. I, I, um, I think that's really interesting. And honestly, I'm not nearly as well, well versed in Ligotti as you are, but like, he's, he's a hardcore Marxist then, right? So I think that. If you really want to, and, and I and we'll get into this kind of kind of later because it is one of the other thematic elements that, that that I found, you can spin out all kinds of different socio-political and economic like things from some of the stuff he's written. Sometimes um, I don't think that you have to, but you can. Um, I think that there that there, that there is, um, and he's he's spoken to it as such. He, I think he's described himself as maybe a socialist at some point. Sure, I think that. I, I think that beyond like the labels of what particular flavor of politics you like, you do have to, I think everyone has to understand that at a certain point, these unreal creations that we've created, the corporations, they do have one goal and that is to maximize their profits. Sure. And they can tell you other shit, but that's the underlying goal. Mm-hmm. And if you, and to think anything else is is to really delude yourself. Like if you think that Gillette like really has, you know, is is really practicing woke capitalism or whatever. Right. Like, sorry, bro. I mean, it's cool, but somebody I, somebody somewhere, uh, probably in an ad department, has made the calculation that the sales they'll lose from conservative folks in you know Mississippi will not you know, be as strong as the gains they will make for, you know, woke liberals in Maryland. So they're going to run a bunch of, you know, pro uh, gay pride ads that piss some people off, drum a lot up a publicity and ultimately sell more racers. Yep. Notice that there's no woke capitalism going on with gun companies. Yeah. Well, and, and, uh, that's probably a separate conversation for a separate day, but I, I find that interesting because, like, those fuckers are still making a ass ton of money, man. You know, so let me let me tell you this: Glock, okay, uh, Glock produces the handguns for uh, a for a majority of the uh, uh, law enforcement in the United States during the assault weapons ban, nineteen ninety two, I believe, to two thousand two. Um, it was you couldn't have more than. 10 rounds in a, uh, in a magazine for, uh, for, for, for a firearm, for a civilian firearm. Now here's the thing. 
is that in order to enforce that, all of the magazines had to be, uh, that were more than that, had to be stamped military law enforcement use only, okay? But all the earlier ones were were grandfathered in. They were pre-ban, right? They were still legal, right? So all of these Glock magazines that held more than 10 rounds, and most Glock pistols, I think all of them at the time held more than 10 rounds, immediately became very, very expensive. We're talking like one magazine, right, which is a piece of plastic and metal with a little spring in it, and up upwards of $100. This is what Glock did. When they would go to a police department during the assault weapons ban, they would say, hey, if you want to trade in all your guns and get brand new ones, here's the price, okay? And when you do that trade-in, we're going to give you brand new magazines for free. And what they did was they would give the, the law enforcement, they would give them those law enforcement military use-only magazines. And they would take from them their old magazines because they're old and they're worn out. And then they would turn around and sell them on the civilian market for 100 bucks a piece. Right, for way more than probably they initially sold for. Oh, and they cost them about two dollars to make. Yep, less than that, and right? It, so, so, so you've got you've got a company, and, and how did that go about? That wasn't like that, this is a new profit stream, right? We're violating the 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 spirit of the law, but not the letter, and nobody's going to care. So let's go do this thing. Well, and, and every company will do that. I, I think it is, regardless of your politics. Uh, I think it is a great example of where corporations look to maximize profit like their impact be damned right like it's it's the same reason why you know corporations don't really give a shit about the environment short term you know they uh don't really care about the overall health and impact you know there's a reason why tobacco companies made billions of dollars for a long time ignoring science you know because we set corporations up to do a very specific thing, right? And that very specific thing is to make a fuck ton of money. And and I think I think it goes I think it goes beyond that because we have legally obligated them to do that, right? If during the uh, um, like let's say like during the um, uh, all, all the congressional testimony about. Uh, does smoking cause cancer? Right. Okay? Yeah. If one of those, if, if Philip Morris would have just like come clean and been like, yeah, dude, t- it's totally, totally, totally causes cancer, man. We've been killing all these people. I don't know how we're going to live with ourselves in congressional testimony and then tanked the stock. Right. That would have been, that probably would have been criminal. You realize that? Oh yeah, absolutely. Like, like you, like you have a fiduciary duty to the shareholders. So, and, and that, that, that's that's a, that's a fine line, but whenever we talk about corporate ethics or corporate governance or you know what do you think Facebook's going to do with all your and like that like that kind of stuff, you need to understand that that they have a fiduciary duty to return investment or to return capital to their shareholders. Bottom line, yeah, and I think. I, I, I don't have the answer for you, but I know in a system that prides itself on capitalism, right, those are the roles that have to be played. It's a little bit like a court of law, right? Like you have the government uh, who acts more or less as the, uh, you know, the defense team that tries to, you know, uh, make sure they're protecting their client, who at least in this context is, uh, you know, the people of, of the country, right? Right. 
And then uh, you have the corporations whose sole job it is to do the one thing that we want them to do, try to get a guilty verdict, right? I probably should swap out these two players and their two roles. But, you know, you, you have an adversarial system, and oftentimes they are set up to play those games. And things get out of whack when one of those sides doesn't play their role appropriately. If you believe in capitalism, right? Like if you believe it to be the thing that we need to maximize, which, you know, Thomas Ligotti would probably say <laughs> is less than ideal, right? Yeah, probably. There, You know, there, there's another story uh, just to, to kind of diverge for, or to, to uh, hit, hammer home that point. Just a little bit more. There's another story called uh, our temporary supervisor, where there is a gentleman that shows up and um, it, it basically can do this this factory job better than anybody else. And and they take away everybody's breaks. Everybody starts working through their breaks and their lunch and stuff. And in it, he says, you know, like the the main character says, like, oh, you know, that was when we uh, revitalized our mind right, and, and our body, and we got a little bit of rest. And we got we and we got recharged and that kind of stuff. And they took that away from us. And they took basically they're taking away our humanity or whatever. And uh, there was a um, somebody was posted online about it um, and about how about a particularly you know Marxist or socialist kind of critique about about that um, where the efficiency just drives away everything that's good in this guy's life. Yeah. Um, and uh, and that and anyways. Uh, Tom Ligotti got on there and he was like, he was like, yeah, no, I totally, I totally. And he had a whole, a whole bunch more about it. So, uh, yeah, no, I think, I think that there's definitely in these kind of narratives, there's definitely a, uh, a, a social commentary that you can read into. Sure. All the time. Yeah. And, and not to, but to wax too nostalgic or whatever, but I think if you think of the best moments of your life, they are often never in corporate settings and they are often, humanistic in that they have spontaneity they don't have efficiency they're oftentimes where you say okay fuck that that is the efficient thing that i should be doing i'm gonna do this other thing instead right and it creates mm -hmm. these truly human moments that i think you know play in very uh as as very sparse foils to the mundane lives that most of us lead, you know, we, we live and we love in inefficiency mm -hmm. and economists and economists revel in it. Yeah. So there's, there's definitely those two things are at loggerheads. And I think that they're going to become, they're, they're going to keep being at loggerheads as we uh, continue to move forward. Right. Yep. All right. All right, so, man. So, Hey, number three, number three, uh, the unknowing and unknowable corporation. Let Azatoth be your mentor. Um, in a lot of these corporate horror tales, the corporation and its upper kind of machinations are almost always obscured. Yeah. Um, and there's a real, but there's also this real sense that the corporation itself is unknowing or at least driven by these alien desires to destroy efficiency. And um, I think that I think that like uh, Lovecraft's uh, blind idiot god Azatoth is is like the could be the uh, like the embodiment of this right like he he's he's blind 
right? And, and corporations are sometimes just blind to anything other than destroying inefficiency. Yeah. Or creating better efficiencies. Well, and I think um, it the idea of a giant god that uh, maybe isn't truly blind, but is so large that it doesn't see the humans in detail, right? It, remi- yeah. it reminds me of, I think, a phenomenal story that made our finals for some short stories we ran a few months ago, where, like, this thing is so big that it, it's not even that it is dehumanizing people, but it doesn't see human beings as a thing worth saving, right? So mm-hmm. when a giant corporation's like, we need to restructure, right? Uh, it doesn't think about the father of four who's 55 years old who, you know, depended on this corporation for 20 years who now has his life ruined, you know, like it, it, Mm -hmm. it doesn't think about things in terms of that individual, but rather as this constantly plotting forward, uh, type of thing. So it, it functions not completely blind, but blind of the minutia. And I think that's, fucked up but absolutely true of corporate horror i think i think one of the things that also you see a lot is the idea in it this is really scary that a organization whether it be a corporation or a a nation or a a church or anything that you've kind of hitched your star to right and 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 that you have your personal life is invested in might not have you at you know, it might not have your best interests in mind. Sure. Right. That for that for years, your best interests and their best interests have gone hand in hand. And then all of a sudden they don't. Yeah. And that and I mean, that's the story of anybody that's been laid off or, you know, so. Well, yeah. Uh, and I think more and more as things become more corporate. Right. As opposed to local that we've seen those impacts more and more. Right. Yeah. Oh, because it's it's way easier to get rid of somebody. Fuck yeah. Yeah, you know, across the across state lines, you know, yeah, or in a or in another country, yeah. So, uh, just two more real quick. Uh, middle management often has the longest necks, right? And corporate horror tends to focus on kind of middle management, or at least white collar kind of industry, kind of like knowledge industry type guys uh, and gals, um, and and. I think there's a couple reasons for this. Like one, there's a disconnect between actual work of like making widgets and stuff and that natural, like, you know, kind of just like weirdness of like, my job doesn't really have like meaning. Right. I kind of have a bullshit job. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Uh, when, when you, when you're not using your hands or you're not actually seeing what's going on. Um, there's a, uh, and there's like a natural weirdness surrounding an employee that may be, um, like good at their job and then gets into the middle ranks and then has to deal with like office politics and they're not like uh, equipped to do so. Sure. Right. So, and these are the people that are the most vested, like in the company, like they're not like they just started, right. They're like vested their Their whole lives are kind of tied up in it, but they haven't gotten far enough that they can control their own destiny. Right. Right. There's no golden parachute yep. for them. Exactly. Uh, they're in this kind of, um, you know, this gray area, what uh, this liminal space, right? Between, you know, um, be, between being taken care of by the corporation, uh, 
but actually producing for the corporation. I, I think that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, exactly. Exactly. I mean, I remember one time and, and my corporate horror story was from the men's warehouse. I remember one time that they, there was a, it was during like an economic downturn or something. Things were not looking good. And I remember there was a guy who was middle management. He was like a regional trainer. And so he wasn't like, like, I remember he told me, he looked at me with this like hundred yard stare and he said, you know, Mike, the middle management guys like me, they're always the first to go. And, you know, and I, I remember, I, I still remember that because yeah, it's, Totally right. Like you can't get rid of a manager at the store. I mean, he's doing like hard work. He's bringing in your money, yeah. right? You can't, but and you can't get rid of the CEO, right? Because you know he's doing important stuff up there. But this guy gets paid a whole bunch of money, and maybe we don't really need him. Middle ranks, right? Yep. So. Yep. All right. What's the last? What's the last one? Okay, the last one. Um, the company is always bigger than you think. So parallels to between existence, greater society, religious ideas, etc., and so on, they're all available through the understanding of the way the corporation works and treats its employees. So um, there can there should there can be and should be kind of a greater meaning to like the whole thing outside of the corporate context. Kind of otherwise, you might just wind up with a corporate thriller. Yeah. Oh, I right? agree. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Big difference yeah, between so, the two, too. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So moving on to the movie, I'm going to read the IMDb summary, and then you and I can kind of talk about what we liked and didn't like about it. So Internet Movie Database argues that in a twisted social experiment, 80 Americans are locked in their high-rise corporate office in Bogota, Colombia, and ordered by an unknown voice coming from the company's intercom system to participate in a deadly game of kill or be killed. So, number one, I thought the movie was just okay. There are two notable things about it. Number one, James Gunn wrote this thing. What the fuck? That's nuts. Uh, But also, the lead character is played by John Gallagher Jr., who uh, won a Tony Award for playing the lead character in spring awakening, which is my favorite musical. So that's all I got. I thought the movie was just okay. Really? I kind of liked it a little bit more. First off, I love Colombia. Colombia is a fantastic country. Um, Bogota is also, is also, is also great. I, I, I've been to Bogota. I didn't, I, it didn't seem a whole lot like Bogota, but whatever. That's fine. I mean, that's Uh, because it took place in a gigantic corporate like headquarters. I know, I know. Um, I loved the soundtrack. I loved it. That that first song, Spanish rend- rendition of "I Will Survive." Yeah, that was perfect. Funny. Yeah, uh-huh. perfect. And then the song, the song at the end too was really good too. Um, it- the uh, the the some of the exterior shots and the CGI on the exterior shots was like something you'd see on like the sci-fi channel, like late at night. Yeah, it was uh, not, not, not good. Not, no, not good at all. No, but I, but an interesting movie. Like I, I, I was oh, kind of I'm halfway like, captivated. No, but you know, I was, so. I was entertained. And yeah, I mean, I, so the movie aims to be like, uh, battle Royale in a corporate headquarters kind of. And, like by it's like yeah it's it's like it's like Hunger Games it's Hunger Games in a I believe you mean Hunger Games 
Oh, sorry about that. <laughs> sorry. It's like it's like it's like Hunger Games in you know. Yeah, vaguely, and, and a, a corporate a corporate setting in an office. So we we totally dig that kind of stuff. So uh, there was another movie that came out at the same time uh, by the director Joe Lynch. The name of the movie was Mayhem, and it, it is similarly plotted in that you have a bunch of people killing each other in a big corporate headquarters. Uh, I tend to like mayhem a little bit better, but it is a little more, I think obtuse in its themes, you know, like when you're talking the Belko experiment, it's obviously a big metaphor for capitalism, right? Like they, they lean heavy into that. And I don't think they intend for it to be anything other than this thing. Right. I, I think Lynch is trying to make maybe a bigger movie with more things to say. So, but I would encourage you to check that movie out. I think you can watch it on shutter still. Now would be a great time to mention you can get a free 30 days just by typing in a uh, signal as the promo code. So check that out and uh, then check it. All that, all that bad shit that we said about corporations does not apply, does not, does not apply, apply to, to yeah, to, to AMC who is, uh, AMC, yeah. yeah, who owns shutter, who does an amazing job and never dehumanizes anybody for any reason. But anyways, there is a great interview with Joe Lynch where he talks about corporate horror. Uh, you can check it out at moviemaker.com, but it draws a lot of parallels between the two. And he has a lot to say about corporate culture that kind of reaffirms what Mike and I talked about in the first part of this episode. So Check out Mayhem and then check out the interview. Is is Mayhem a zombie movie? No, not at all. Okay, all right. I cool. mean, maybe in the broadest definition of what a zombie movie okay. is, but not. Well, I'm I'm gonna have to check it out because I'm on I'm on the hunt for things that really do like kind of reflect these corporate horror elements, which I think I my personal opinion is that evil corporation trend will continue, but that there is this other thing. There's this corporate horror thing that I think will start to get a little bit more kind of, kind of traction because I think it just, it, it really encapsulates kind of some of the criticisms that people want to make about corporations and about society and about capitalism in a better way than just having an evil corporation because evil corporation movies are often dumb. Yeah. Oh, I agree. And and they're, They can. They, I get they this can MacGuffin, be cheap. so I can yes, make profit. Right, right, yeah. and they're not really speaking to larger conceptions of class warfare or any of that. Uh, because, because the, the key, the key is you have to. It has to be a corporation rather than just some evil people that run a corporation. Right. That's the that's the key. Right, right. So, anyways, I, I think you will be happy with. If if you're really looking for a corporate horror, I think you would be fine with with either one of those movies. I, I think Mayhem or the Belko Experiment at least nip around the edges enough that that. I, I was I was happy with Belko Exper- Experiment. I thought I thought it was it was in general a, a, a good movie. I thought it was representative of corporate horror and that. Uh, I think that some of the some of the elements that I thought at first were a little bit dumb, kind of like looking back on it, were. Little t- tips of the hat to corporate horror. Yeah, I think. Oh, you know? yeah. The a movie that you will often hear in the conversation with corporate horror 
though not occupying the exact space, is office space, right? Because it presents this giant bureaucratic, like, leviathan, right? It presents it in kind of a humorous light, but understanding the relationship between comedy and horror here, like, Mm -hmm. I think you could totally see the intersectionality of both of those genres in the Belko experiment and in office space. There is a lot of humor, I think, in the Belko experiment, and there is a lot of, like, soul-crushing fucking, uh, you know... uh, soullessness in office space. So I I think those things as a double feature would be pretty, pretty rad, pretty interesting. Well, all right, dude, we're kind of running out of time, but let's ring that spoiler bell because I want to spoil the ending to this thing. Okay. And let's run through my elements of corporate horror with Belko experiment. Okay. All right. Okay. Here we go. Spoiler bell. Okay. First off, do they have an evil corporation? Uh, yeah, I mean, okay. Unabashedly, right. right? Okay. Does it go, does it go beyond that? Is, is, is this evil corporation all encompassing in the story? Uh, I mean, kind of, uh, I don't, I don't think anybody is offering uh, a view of a good corporate entity here. Well, yeah, but I'm, but what I'm saying is like everything takes place in the office, right? In the corporate. Oh yeah. hundred percent. And they control the whole thing. In fact, these people are in Colombia, where I think a lot of them don't speak Spanish, right? And are probably very, what do you call it, uh, uh, you know, indebted to the corporation for their daily living, right? So, all right. Are people dehumanized? I mean, 100%, right? Like, (laughs) yes. When when you pit them against one another, you know, yeah. Well, I mean... They they put trackers in them. Oh yeah, right, yeah, right. They so so from the very from the very start, right? It, that because that tracker conversation thing happens like I mean that's like right at the beginning of the movie, um, and then also there's this kind of thing like where they send all like they they don't let any of the locals come into work, right, right, and then they're like. And then, like, kind of nobody notices, and they're like, why didn't they come in? It's like, oh, there was some kind of security thing or whatever. Like, they're not even, it was like, you know, hey, why didn't the why didn't the serfs come in today? Oh, I don't know, something with the something, something. You know, it's yeah. kind of, you know, it's not, it's not, hey, you know, how come Enrique didn't come into work today? I was supposed to work on, on him, with him on this project. You know, it's like, it's like, why didn't all the locals not, not come in? Uh, I don't know. So, yeah. And I I think we could have a whole different episode about its treatment of that kind of indigenous population on purpose, you know, like somebody's trying to make an argument about that too, but that's a a different thing. So, so is the company unknowing and unknowable? Yeah. Right. Like we get some corporate structure, but I think there are folks at the top that we get to the kind of mindless, um, closed circuit cameras and that kind of stuff. Yeah. So what do they do, Tyler? What, what's their, what's their job like day to day inside the, inside the office? I was very keyed in on, in on this. I want to see if you picked it up. Uh, what, what do they do? I did not. I don't, I, I don't know. They, they are a company that provides American labor to companies in South America, which is the absolute dumbest business model you can possibly imagine. <laughs> Because nobody right. fucking do it, right? 
No, I know. Seriously, like, why? Why on earth would you, it, just, just think about it, right? Why would you send? They have a chef. They shouldn't send a chef from the United States to go work in Bogota, right? Do you know how much that would cost? And do you know how many great chefs there are in Bogota already? Yeah, <laughs> you know. Yeah, it's just it's just dumb, right? So, so when corporations like really do send people overseas to work, it's usually people that are either one very specially skilled, right, in a very special skill set, like they can repair a certain thing, or they're an engineer for this thing, or it's like the head boss, right? Yep. So to have to have a whole to have sixty Americans, that's that's insane. That's insane. It's a dumb company. It's a dumb company. Nobody knows what they're doing. Nobody knows what they're selling. Like, and uh, yeah, and it should be no no surprise that they all get uh, laid off at the end. I got you. Uh, Literally. Yeah. 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 Laid off and massacred. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. What's next? Okay, are they kind of middle management? Uh, I I think there are members that are. Yeah, I mean, I think you see that corporate power structure there for a reason, you know? Mm-hmm. So, yes. And, 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 and I, I think it's important that our, our people that are uh, the biggest movers and shakers, like the people that are the characters, like the main, kind of the main character and the uh, uh, Milch, Milch, I think is his last name, which is a totally great name for our Mike Milch, which is the totally like just like I don't know, just like blah. white bread, yeah. like blah. Blah. yeah, blah, yeah, name, yeah. yeah. Uh, and uh, you know, even even the even the, the the bad dude that's kind of in charge of everybody, he's just kind of middle management, right? Yeah, so just slightly yeah. slightly above, right? Like yeah, yeah, but. In the end, all these people are very vested, and they do not control their own destiny. That's right. for damn sure. Right. For sure, for sure. And we're going to spoil the end of the movie here, the ending of the movie here. But hey, is this corporation way bigger than than you think? Oh, fuck yeah, right? Yeah, which I think is that scene at the end. All right? What, what, what's your interpretation of that final scene? What the, it was uh, an experiment that was not only run there, but going to be run in all kinds of different venues, right? And the camera just pans out, yep. And you see all of these other places, right? Yep. And that scene, and- that that scene, the one thing that we haven't talked about, reminded me of Cabin in the Woods, right? Where yeah. this big corporation is doing tons of different like experiments and running all these things at the same time and trying to keep all these balls afloat, if you will. Right. But, mm-hmm. uh, they all need to functionally run kind of the same way. And they're all of equal importance and equal unimportance, you know? Yeah. 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 But I, I, I love, I love that final scene. That final shot is what made this movie for me because I think that it not only makes the corporation way bigger than you think, right? Like literally, Okay, in the context of the movie, but also I think it gives you a there. There's there's a lot of socioeconomic kind of meaning that you can read into this movie, Uh, outsourcing, layoffs, that kind of stuff. But I think at the end, where you see all these people that are so uh, uh, broken, okay, and they're all distant from each other, that that is like the perfect kind of metaphor for us yeah right oh yeah i mean we're all we're we're all so splintered and fragmented and so far away 
Ah, and then and then and there's that one where this lady has written in. Hopefully, hopefully she found a bucket of paint, but I think it's supposed to be blood. Uh, like forgive me. Yeah, right. And it's yeah, and so a movie that is is really just an okay movie winds up having all this kind of other stuff in it. Yeah, and I think that's fantastic. Sure. And and you can do it with corporate horror. And Tyler and Mike have told you how. Now all you have to do is go out there and make your own corporate horror movies and reap the profits. Yeah. Make all the money in the world and give a little bit to our Patreon page. We'll put oh, we'll put a link in the show notes. Yeah. So do we have I have to mention that Sig- Signal Horizon is incorporated as a company. Oh fuck yeah. LLC yeah. bitches. LLC, yeah. yeah. John McGinley was in this too. Wasn't he? Yeah, I don't know, maybe. So have you gone through all your standards? All my standard what? You know, like all your criteria, all your. I I wouldn't call them criteria. I I, I would say that they were they are shared uh, themes and uh, uh, shared themes. Okay. All right. So we've been through them yeah. all. Uh, the one thing I will mention in our Thomas Ligotti conversation, at least some of my conversation came from a really brilliant article called "Occupational Hazards, Nihilism, and Negation in Thomas Ligotti's Corporate Horror." by Ratched M. Rabadi from the Journal of the Dark Hearts. We'll put uh, a link in the show notes. The article is fan-fucking-tastic and gave me a sense of what Thomas Ligotti was about, and I'm not that well-versed in it. So check it out if you want further discussion of um, Ligotti and corporate horror. It is it is great. And you know what? Some of the, some of the absolute best nonfiction that I've read about horror have been people writing about Thomas Ligotti, believe it or not. That's how, that's how I learned about Matt Carden years ago. Um, I read uh, shadow at the bottom of the world and by Thomas Ligotti. And I was like, I have no idea what this is. Like what the, what the F did I just read? Right. And I got to Googling around and then sure enough, there's Matt Carden with a, uh, with a, a really brilliant nonfiction piece about it. And, uh, uh, in, in in regards to um, liminal spaces, oh, yeah. and yeah. it just it just made it made it all click together. So cool. Kudos to kudos to Matt. You want to know who wouldn't give kudos to this movie at least? Oh, he's back! He's back from the summer. Is oh. it an anonymous Amazon user? Yes. Yeah, that guy yes, failed class back. last time, so he is he's back. back. Uh, bring bring on your nihilism, anonymous Amazon user. I don't think he understands what nihilism is, my friend. No, probably not. No. Uh, you want this one, or you want me to? He never should have been born. This anonymous Amazon user. Okay. Oh, God. Um, the the movie poster is more interesting than the film, and that scene never happens. What what movie poster is that? Does like the one sheet will include a photo of it. He, I mean, okay. he kind of is right, but whatever. Okay. If you thought this was an office building you pass every day in your city where X reason they're told to kill each other and everything runs around bashing each other with fire extinguishers and office chairs like it's WWE X capital X hyphen Tream wrestling match. No, <laughs> they get the guns real quick. And there's also no hide and seek or seek or trap setting like in battle royale. Mostly, I don't like anyone. I didn't care what happened, who survived. There was no one to root for. Rent iced teas, mean guns, or mayhem instead. Hmm. Well, I liked mayhem, All which right. was good. I, I, All right. Admittedly, I've never seen mean guns. So, 
I'll have to. I mean, this is this 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 is this is basically like the worst thing that you can say about a movie is like you should have rented Ice T's Moon Guns instead. <laughs> I know that should be I, before I'll go watch it that that way I could feel secure in that insult. But from now yeah. on, like if I really dislike a movie, I'll be like. Yeah. yeah, you should rent iced teas, yeah. mean goods instead. Yeah. How was how was how, how was how, how was your dinner last night? At, uh, I should have rented yeah, iced teas, yeah. mean goods. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. I like it. Exactly. I like it. All right, all right. Yeah. New insult. Okay, you know that's fair enough. I mean, this guy uh, kind of kind of thought that he was going to go see one thing, and he wound up kind of seeing something else. Um, Probably because he didn't listen, because uh, he never listens in class. So never. But you all never. listened, so. Thank you so much for joining us on our first episode of our junior year, our third year here at the Horror Pod Class. A couple of quick housekeeping things at the end. Number one, hop on over to our Facebook group and join the Horror Pod Class, where we will discuss all things corporate horror amongst many, many other things. If you like what we're doing here and want us to continue to produce a new and thoughtful material about horror, uh, think about giving a dollar or two to our Patreon page and helping us keep uh, the computers booted up and our classroom lights on. Hey, and those employees are not going to dehumanize themselves. Okay. We need, we need money to dehumanize them. Those trackers cost money. Right. Right. And, and we are really looking forward to making signal horizon, um, the kind of consumer behemoth that will eventually eat us all. So until signal horizon gets that big and starts to uh, eat us all from the inside out, you can follow more of my stuff at at Ty Unsel on Twitter, or you can catch all of my stuff on Signal Horizon. Um, or, you know, send us an email at Tyler or Mike at SignalHorizon.com. Mike, can they catch your stuff anywhere else? You know, I, I, I produce the ultimate product. Nothing. <laughs> and for this product, I command the ultimate price. Everything. You can get me on Mike at Signal Horizon or... Um, at signalhorizon.com. Yep. Goodreads, right? They can get your shit at Goodreads. They can get me on Goodreads too. Yeah. I'll put a link to my Goodreads profile. Yeah, yeah, you will. All right. So next week, we have a couple of really exciting things coming up. Next week we are going to talk about paranormal activity and the concept of the haunted house. But then the week after, Mike, the week after, we're gonna have John Langan on. Holy moly, John Langan. Like the John Langan. My favorite John. my favorite horror writer. He's like uh you know, the Thomas Legati to to Michael, you know, like he he yeah. is it for me. So we're super excited to have him on um here in a couple of weeks. But we have lots of great stuff planned. So check out next week when we're talking to you about paranormal activity and the haunted house. Yeah, John Langan's gonna be great. I mean he's you know, no Thomas Ligotti, but I mean, he's he is more accessible. I mean, there's <laughs> Jesus, there, there's, yes. there's 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 more than one picture of of John Langan out I there. I mean, to be fair, like Michelle Foucault is more accessible than motherfucking Thomas Ligotti. But hey, whatever. Yeah, I, I think I think I think I think you'd be better off trying to try, trying to do some necromancy and bringing up the corpse of uh of uh of, of H.P. Lovecraft to get on this to get uh, on the show than Thomas Ligotti. But whatever. No thanks. Uh, I'll, I'll pass on that one. Yeah. Uh, I have uh, friends that are of color that, uh, you know, probably wouldn't take real great to old HP talking his, uh, you know, his philosophy and whatnot. If I- so, Howard, Howard, what, 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 do you, what do you think about brown people? 
don't don't like them. (laughs) Dot, dot, dot. If I wanted that shit, I'd just check out the president's uh, Twitter feed, right? (laughs) Hey, on that note, uh, until we see you next week, class dismissed.